I believe that you received one when you walked in the door. If you can just leave it in your seat or pass it to the end or something classroom-like whenever this is over, that would be great. Um, I'm also to remind you that the evening event will be at the Bullock Museum, which is across the street from the convention center. Attendees will be walking, no buses are provided. So that is your PSA for this session. Um, also, we are being recorded, so if you guys have questions, just be aware that you're recorded. Um, and if you don't want to be, I'm sure there's a form. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to History in Motion, archival film and video in historical collections. We're here today to talk about non-theatrical film and video that document unique and often very entertaining community and regional histories. Too often, moving images remain buried in historical collections, overlooked due to obsolete media or the sheer cost to digitize atypical archival and museum content. These media artifacts, however, offer unique representations of socio-cultural trends, significant community events, and the day-to-day -day lives of individual citizens. Today, we're gonna to discuss the very genres of these moving images with an emphasis on amateur footage and community video, among other things. We'll look at case studies of discovery via community outreach and inter-institutional collaboration, tips for large and small-scale digitization, PR and funding suggestions, and how various methods can make this type of content accessible to all levels of students and the general public. And most importantly, we will have a lot of fun watching some specially selected archival films. Um, I'm gonna introduce our panelists. Uh, because we're watching film, we're not gonna sit up here because we were blocking the projector. So they are down here in the front row and they will give a little wave. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start with Karen Sheldon. Um, she is the co-founder of Northern New England's Moving Image Archives, Northeast Historic Film, which can be found at oldfilm.org. Um, old, uh, sorry, Northeast Historic Film is the recipient of the Silver Light Award from the Association of Moving Image Archivists. Her book, Amateur Movie Making, Aesthetics of the Everyday in New England Film, 1915 to 1960, is an anthology with web access to moving images and was published in 2017 by Indiana University Press. Karen has successfully requested funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities, State Arts and Humanities Councils, the Council for Library and Information Services, and others. Uh, she's the curator of museum screenings, including You Work, Will Watch, and Exceptional Amateur Films, and her presentations include lectures in regional and non-traditional moving image archiving for the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation in Rochester, New York. Uh, next up is Justin Kovar. Uh, Justin attended the University of Texas at Austin here, uh, the School of Information for his Master's of Science in Information Science. Uh, while in school, he worked as a GRA for the Historical Music Recordings Collection at the University of Texas and was a TA for audio preservation courses and a digitization intern for the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. Since graduating in 2009, he has worked at the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History, where he is currently the audio and moving image archivist and music curator. And last is Laura Treat. Give us a wave. Um, she also earned her MSIS from UT's School of Information, where her research focused on the scholarly use of archival moving image collections. During this time, she also worked as a digitization intern at the Texas Archive of the Moving Image and was also the assistant to the technical director. Since 2015, she has worked as the Moving Image Preservation Librarian at the University of North Texas, where she oversees the preservation and digitization of the library's moving image collections. Her current research interests involve the histories of amateur moving images, 
regional moving image production and distribution, and integrating moving images into instruction and outreach. And I'm Madeline Moya. I'm the managing director at the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. So now you'll notice three of us have had experience uh, at TAMI, which is what I'm just going to call the Texas Archive of the Moving Image going forward, TAMI. Um, my duties at TAMI include project management, web maintenance, and web installation building, collections management, and planning and executing TAMI's traveling exhibition and film collection event in communities throughout Texas, which I'm going to talk to you about today as well. I'm going to speak first because I'm up here. Um, as some background, TAMI is a nonprofit that works to discover, preserve, and provide access to the, the community about tech, sorry, I've said this line about a million times, uh, preserve, provide access to, and educate the community about Texas's film heritage. TAMI's collection includes home movies, B-roll, amateur films, advertisements, local television, educational films, and industri industrial productions, just to name a few. While we do have some Hollywood films in our production, like the other organizations represented on this panel, TAMI kind of represents the other side of film preservation, the non-cinema side of the field. Hollywood films typically have homes and are well taken care of because they may make money. And the materials in our collections uh, have typically been uh, destined for the dumpster or they've been in a closet or a garage uh, or a uh, attic you know, for several decades. So this is not glamorous film work. There's no red carpet. Um, it's often, you know, you just roll up your sleeves and dive into piles of really smelly film cans type of work. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Some basic info that some of you may already know, but just it's important to know when you're talking about film preservation, is that films and videotapes are not made to last. Over 50% of Hollywood productions made before 1950 are considered lost. And for Texas produced material, the statistics are estimated at closer to 90%. Uh, although you can't really feel it outside right now, Texas's climate is generally very hot and humid, and films and videotapes are susceptible to heat and humidity. And other Texas collections have been lost to hurricanes and floods. We've seen a really good example of that in the past week. Or just simple neglect. Um, when film decays, it shrinks and curls and becomes brittle. You can see that really well in this photograph. Um, the most common symptom of film deterioration is called vinegar syndrome. It's the degradation of the film base, and you can smell vinegar syndrome when you open a film can that has not been properly preserved. And vinegar syndrome can spread, so one decomposing film can spoil an entire collection. So not to be dramatic, but we're kind of in a race against time when trying to rescue these materials. Tammy's main project uh, is a partnership with the Texas Film Commission named the Texas Film Roundup. The Roundup program uh, takes Tammy across the state to collect Texas-related films and videotapes for free digitization, resulting in a large online streaming library of Texas film. This is a pretty unique program, but elements of it could be replicated in a scaled-down version should any of your institutions want to work with archival fil film, either from your collections or through a community event where people bring out their films and videotapes. So at TAMI, we choose three locations per year for our Roundup events, and we try to target different regions of Texas in an effort to represent the entire state, which is kind of a tall order in a state this big, so we, <laughs> we have to really work to get out there. Um, we partner with a community organization like a public library or a historic museum in each community where we set up shop for a few days. We bring a full museum exhibit about film preservation and Texas media history. And we have a reel of archival film playing from the region 
throughout the entire event. We usually have a free screening program. Um, before, before the event, we do some legwork to uh, digitize collections from museums and libraries ahead of time so we have good material to go down there with. And uh, we do a public screening, which are really well attended and people really have fun. They connect to it. They enjoy seeing their community and their landmarks over the decades uh, on the big screen. Uh, so that's really fun and it, and it makes a personal connection to the project. It kind of is a foreign concept to a lot of people you know, what we're trying to do, so it, it makes a good connection for them. So we have a screening event, and then we stay on site for several days to collect films and videotapes from the public. Like, people can just bring them in, and then we take them and bring them back to Austin to, to digitize them. Um, we accept 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter, and Super 8 film, and then VHS and other types of videotape, like small videotape formats, if you guys will remember from the 80s and 90s. Um, you can see some of our equipment here. This is a telecine. This is actually one of our older machines, but it looks cooler than the new ones. Um, that's a digital camera that you know, captures digital images of each frame of the film and puts it through an AV converter into our computers. Um, to date, we have digitized more than 38,000 items at TAMI, so we have a pretty robust collection to work with, but we really have to go through a process of discovery once the films are digitized. Many times people bring us stuff, like I said, from an attic or a closet that hasn't been touched in a long time, and it's often a younger generation. Uh, sometimes their great-grandfather made the films, and they just have no idea what's on it, and they kind of throw it at us and say, here. <laughs> and with the institutional collections, uh, you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable handling film or video, or there isn't playback equipment, so they often, those materials just sit on shelves at institutions, um, and the institutional knowledge often gets lost. So. Our cataloging team has a pretty challenging job sometimes trying to identify people and places on film, uh, but it's pretty fascinating work and we find some pretty important pieces of history, I think. Um, I'm just gonna give you an overview of the types of materials we acquire and the various ways that we use them once we gain new access to them. Um, what we typically receive from individual or family participants at the Roundup are home movies. Uh, an overwhelming majority of these home movies are of backyard birthday parties, Easter, Easter Sundays, and Christmas mornings. I love home movies. I think they're beautiful, and I almost never get tired of watching them. But whether one feels that way or not, what we like to argue and what we're trying to teach the public is that these non-cinematic moving images matter. Uh, they're a crucial part of our public record. Home movies, in particular, are one of the best documents of our culture that exist. Uh, most of our records as a people were made by the government. That's why archives were formed in the first place, to house government records. But home movies capture emotions and mannerisms, regional accents and customs, all from the citizen's perspective. So whether you find the content mundane or not, we like to argue that home movies serve a very important purpose. And sometimes in the middle of those Christmases and Thanksgivings, you find a home movie like this one. Um, this came in from a roundup in Amarillo in 2014. Um, the man that brought them to us, his dad was, uh, owned a plow company and he was a traveling plow salesman. And he thinks that his father just happened to be selling plows in Alabama in 1965 at the time of the Selma March, just as a coincidence and had his camera with him. Um, we determined that this is the third Selma to Montgomery March and it's obviously really great footage. This is a classic case of the donor not knowing what was on the film. His father passed away in 1968 when he was 16, 
and those films sat in a closet until he got them out to bring them to us. Um, he had no recollection of his father being at the march. Um, he just noticed that one of the film cans was labeled Selma, and he was like, you might want to pay special attention to this one. And yeah, we really did want to pay special attention to it. Um, this is also a great illustration of why home movies are you know, important historical documents, because this really captures what it was like to be there, you know, like at the base of the civil rights movement, um, you know, and see what it was like without any bias or dramatization, which was a hot topic if you guys remember when Selma came out, the movie Selma came out. Um, so yeah, this also, we discovered it right at the 50th anniversary of the march, um, so it was just a really great find for us. Of course, not every home movie is going to be quite as sexy as this one, um, but each collection has at least a few special moments, even if they look a little more like this one. Who doesn't want to do the twist in their living room? On 8mm and 16mm film, the videos are pretty consistently posed. Film is usually only being rolled if it was a special occasion or if the family was all together. This is because film was expensive and each reel only held three to four minutes. Uh, when VHS came around, everything changed. The contrast with film is pretty stark. Suddenly, families had four hours of videotape for two bucks and home movies began being made by the dozen. Uh, it's important to note that VHS did democratize the home movie to some extent, uh, which is obviously important when you're representing, trying to represent Texas history. All of our minority family collections, not all of them, almost all of our minority family collections are actually on VHS. Um, and there are some true gems that we've discovered on tape. All of the best quinceanera footage is on VHS, and many of those, if you will note, include the best Aquanet bangs that you can imagine. Um, We've also found a lot of Mexican folklorico dances from El Paso in one family's collection, which is a great representation of a border town. Um, but for the most part, there's just a lot of filler on tape. There are just like hours long uh, junior high band concerts and little league games and school plays. Those are dicey. Um, <laughs> but there are entire decades uh, and cultures documented on VHS, so it's our job to sift through all that filler to find the culturally significant videos. As I mentioned previously, in addition to the home movies found through Roundups, we also form partnerships with historical societies, libraries, and museums to preserve films in their collections. It's a great opportunity for the institutions to obtain new access to their materials that are on obsolete media for free. And we've had partner organizations use these digitized materials in their exhibits, uh, on display in lobbies or meeting spaces, on their websites, at community events. We even had one library make access copies of the videos on DVD for students to check out for research, which I thought was really great. Um, through these partnerships, we found local educational films, tourism tapes, public access television, films of local industry, and local television news. Uh, we recently actually found a promotional film for the city of Nor Fort Worth that was narrated by Hollywood star Jimmy Stewart, which is just so random. You, know, <laughs> you just never know what you're gonna find. Um, I'm going to show you a clip here of a fan favorite. This was from a roundup in San Angelo uh, from the Miss Wool of America collection found at San Angelo State University. 
I had never heard of the Miss Wool of America pageant, but I was naturally very intrigued. Uh, upon some further research, it turned out that the pageant ran from 1952 to 1972 and was sponsored by the National Sheep and Wool Associations, held in San Angelo to celebrate its strong sheep and wool industry. So these young women were all Miss Wools in their home state, and they would come to San Angelo for the national pageant. Um, at the national pageant, they would all model the latest woolen fashions. And I think that wearing wool at a pageant in West Texas is absurd. <laughs> like, um, but, but that's part of what makes these so gold. Like, the fashion is amazing, actually. Um, they must have been very hot, though. Um, so this is also a fantastic example of a local history and of the industry there. Um, and it's scarcely represented elsewhere. Uh, we were just thrilled while we watched them. So I'm gonna play a brief segment of the 1968 Miss Wool pageant when it was in its heyday and it was nationally telecast in a variety show format. Uh, celebrities took part in the, uh, in the show. You'll see Art Linkletter here, but Frankie Avalon and June Allison were also in the, uh, in the show that year. Miss Wool of Colorado, Mary Smiley. Mary Smiley, as you might guess, is a skier, and it's a wonder we haven't run into each other at Aspen or Snowmass. I wish we would have. We will next Christmas. We promise. It's a day. Now, you like sports. Do you like fellas? Oh, very much. What awesome. do you think of hippies? Well, I like them too, but I like boys better. Well, I mean... Thank you very much. The jokes keep coming with art. Um, it's great. Um, this last clip that I'm showing you that is playing right now um, is a really unique one from the East Texas Research Center. Uh, it was discovered by retired Nacogdoches High School assistant principal Edwin DeBose during a major cleanup of the high school in the 1960s. He found it in the school attic, it was outside of the can, and it was just labeled on the real Nacogdoches 1938. And he just moved it from desk to desk over the decades. Um, and didn't have it transferred or think to do anything with it other than use it as a paperweight until 2014, at which point the citizens of Nacogdoches got to see their city uh, 75 years later. Um, we think that this was made by an itinerant filmmaker, which uh, was a popular type of filmmaker in the 30s and 40s and a little bit later, but mostly then, um, who would go around from town to town and film like storefronts and uh, school children other like local activities and then the film would play in the local theater and it would actually stay there so here you can see like some local business I assume that's a pharmacist but this is just really exceptional stuff it's a really cool story and the city of Nacogdoches has had many community screenings um, it was a, a big deal for them so at this point we have more than 4,000 videos that stream on our website uh, which is great, we feel really good about that. But now we just need people to use it. Um, we try to do several things with the content other than just stream it on the website, um, which I was gonna show you, but we had some problems with the displays. Um, this is a screenshot of our website, which is great. I won't be able to take you there. Um, but we do several um, content features each month, like a new releases like you see here, and some behind the scenes stuff, discoveries that we make. Um, but then twice a year, we produce two web exhibits that are really extensively researched and feature a set of films that speak to a selected topic. Um, and we've begun making these in some really snazzy web installations, if I do say so myself, since I build them. Um, 
but uh, we've we've created through those web exhibits a lot of really uh, different entry points. Like we have maps where you can go in and see all of the videos from each region on the map, um, and then timelines of history so that you can access the videos another way. And then you know, kind of by subtopic, and it, you uh, kind of tour it like you would an exhibit. Uh, it's set up to flow that way in a, in a straightforward narrative. I would love to be showing you that right now. Um, but we have made these exhibits about um, the Cold War, the space race. Uh, the space race exhibit actually won an AASLH award uh, last year. Um, and more recently, we've created exhibits on the Texas border and natural disasters in Texas, which have both become unexpectedly relevant in recent days. Um, but they're really cool. Uh, I'm really excited about them. I'm sorry I can't show them to you. Um, but they, they do, they give a lot of context to the films and illustrate the sustained relevance of the group of films and videos that we select. Um, another one of our main missions is to get our materials into K through 12 classrooms. And we devote an entire portion of our website to lesson plans that use our films as primary sources. We believe very strongly that these videos we work to collect and make accessible are very important for students. Uh, they can really bring history to life uh, for all, you know, all age levels. It's sometimes challenging to communicate just using a textbook the urgency of an oil boom or how people reported news stories or what it was like to watch a space shuttle launch. Um, so it's a good, good tool to show them all of those things like that. Um, so we create several of these a year. Again, like I said, they're free. Um, I'm just, these are just some examples. This lesson plan draws on the web exhibit that I mentioned, so it actually takes the kids into that exhibit text so that it's already researched and uh, they use the exhibit to do project-based learning uh, that develops their personal ties to the past. And then this one is my favorite, it's called History in Your Own Backyard. Uh, kids use home movies and regional films to research their own hometown investigating local events and landmarks to examine how they've changed over time in their own geographic area of the state. And then they conduct family interviews to discover why their own family settled in that area. And then in groups, they make their own short films documenting their modern community. And then those are submitted to us and they can stream on our website as well, alongside all of the films that they used to do their projects. Uh, so that's, that, that's my favorite of our activities. I think it really engages the students. Um, so those are, briefly some of the ways that we use the films and that's about it for me. I encourage you guys to look around your own collections and see if you have film or video that might contain some of your own community history. And thanks for coming. I'm going to turn it over to Karen over here. Karen Sheldon from Northeast Historic Film, and we're thrilled that you're here. And I have a question. How many of you come from institutions that do have film and video? Just about everybody. And how many of you are actively using those in public programs? Not quite so many. So we're glad you're here. And this is necessarily brief, because like we each have just a few minutes. So. We'll talk at the end, but then please come up afterwards and um, talk to us more, because we have, over the years, really gathered resources and experience hard and fun. So we'd love to share that with you. 
So from the really excellent overview, and I want to thank Madeline for setting up this panel. Um, I came a long way, and it's been delightful, my first American Association for State and Local History. So thank you, Madeline, and thank you, panel members. I'm going to talk about the really small format, 8 millimeter. Um, and it's a small format with really large effects. Um, and I'm going to draw on two books, Alan Cattell's book, Home Movies, A History of the American Industry, and a new Indiana University Press anthology, American Movie Making Aesthetics of the Everyday. So the case that we're going to discuss today is Anna Harris, who lived from 1896 to 1979. She was an African-American woman who lived in Manchester, Vermont for 40 years. Using a Keystone handheld camera, Harris shot 37 reels of 8mm film, mostly Kodachrome, between 1949 and 1958. The film was found on eBay. And uh, any of you here acquire things from eBay, or is that? Yes. Yeah, well, it's unavoidable. There we are, the eBay generation. Um, the films came to Northeast Historic Film in their original Kodak boxes, as you can see here. The first is inscribed, Fishing in High Heels. Ha! So Harris's amateur films depicting her interests, her relationships, and her surrounding landscape create a portrait of Manchester, Vermont, revealing a four-season community of color which had otherwise been unregistered in local histories. Harris, a woman, a service worker, a person of color, was unknown. The found 8mm story indicates that personal narratives in 8mm film may be much larger in scope than the narrow term home movies might indicate, and that small gauge film can reshape a historical society's insights and relationships. These are eight millimeter films, each some three to four minutes long, as Madeline said, and on the right, the tiniest of frames. I'm here to encourage you to seek out to save and to work with 8mm home movies in order to reconnect and revalue them. Each 8mm reel is singular. That reel passed through the camera, it was processed, and is the only copy. They are detailed moving image works. The film reels encode information outside the image, the date of the film stock's manufacture, and the make and model of the camera used. Many contain intimate and engaging first-person, working-class visual narratives. So this is Alan Cattell, and his technology collection is presently at Northeast Historic Film. Initially, 8mm film technology was designed and marketed as an affordable product. Kodak released 8mm cameras and film stocks in 1932 in the Great Depression. Alan Cattell says, quote, both the consumer and the competition reacted cautiously to the new gauge. Serious amateurs, who formed the backbone of the amateur film market at that time, were disinclined to switch to 8mm 
because the majority of that class were not particularly concerned with the economy. Here, the new gauge is announced in the Journal of the Anim Amateur Cinema League from July of 1932. From 30 years of collecting amateur film and home movies in northern New England, we know that there are important 8mm films from small towns and working class people. A good example is Milton Dow's 8mm re reels from the Palermo Historical Society collection. Palermo is a town of 1500 midway between the Atlantic coast and Augusta, Maine. Milton and Virginia Dow found 8mm filmmaking to be a creative enterprise making trick films in their kitchen and backyard. With the passing of the photochemical era, and we know that the digital present is breathing down each and every one of you's necks, it's important to note how a film gauge, the original film gauge characteristics, bear on the visual record. And so when we publish both online and in hard copy, we give you information about the original reels. How many splices? What gauge was it on? The Dow's care in recording the world they valued is one instance. So is Anna Harris's thoughtful engagement of Manchester friends. The social and economic lives of women in mid-century may be better understood when revealed by amateur films such as Anna B. Harris's. Harris worked as a housekeeper. On her death certificate, the usual occupation is written as domestic. While Harris frequently films a particular street in Manchester, Vermont, the town office found no record of home ownership in her name. It took nearly a year to determine where Harris lived and from whom she rented. Trevor Mignot's at the Maryland Institute for Technology and the Humanities reminds us, has been difficult to find information on African-American migrants because due to redlining, they often lived in rental housing. The street Harris includes in many 8mm reels is the site of her housekeeping job, not the apartment she rented to live in. I suggest to you that 8mm film, because of affordability and availability, is a remarkably inclusive medium. For examples of other small gauge films from the collection of friends on this panel, you might watch the Texas Archive of the Moving Images Ramon Galindo collection. This is an incredible dog chase right through town, and the Super 8 films of Ouida Whitaker-Dean. Farmers, youth, women, independent business people may all be found in small gauge films. These documents are rich resources for further research, interpretive programs, and community engagement. The Amateur Movie Database, led by Charles Tepperman at the University of Calgary, and thank you very much for taking handouts from me as you came in, and there are more upstairs if you came in later. So by the registration, there are further, there's further information on, on uh, the Amateur Movie Database. It's an aggregator for titled amateur film with over 1,500 items listed. And the database is at amateurcinema.org. It has about 408 millimeter titles, and it surprised both me and Charles, the project leader, that there were that many 8 millimeter films in it. They're looking for more, and um, please be in touch with them. In our new anthology, Karen Gracie from Kent State University writes on revaluing home movies. Quote, archivists and curators should reconsider their approaches to appraisal of these films. Cultural heritage professionals can recruit and cooperate 
with scholars, artists, and community stakeholders from various disciplines to provide new perspectives on the value of this material and evoke the multiplicity of values embedded in home movies. It's probably impolitic to say here because this is a, a history gathering, but really for me now, it's the aesthetic quality of these works that is so key. It can be both immediate and joyful in scenes of women rolling down a hill, or call for close cultural analysis, as in Harris's frequent use of social promenade to capture friends in the landscape. And if anybody knows about social promenade mid-century, I'd love to talk to you. It's something we have not seen in a lot of other home movies, and we're going to be pursuing it. Today, we don't have time to focus on in-camera editing aesthetics and demands, Briefly, there's a lot to be studied in home movies, and your audiences will find great pleasure in both their content and their form. The anthology also contains an essay on home movies and privacy by Melissa Dolman, who set out to explore the potential ethical implications of presenting home movies in a public context without the explicit consent of either the filmmaker or the subject whose images are captured. Leaning in on 8mm film can shift fundamental understanding of communities. This August in Manchester, after screening 14 reels of Anna Harris's film at the first public audience for her films, an adult audience member raised a hand. I didn't know there were black people here. True, Vermont is one of the whitest states in the US, but dominant culture notions are effectively challenged by first-person records. Please seek them out. In our first visit to the Historical Society, we had learned how radical the discovery of Anna Harris's film could be to a historical society. They had previously no moving images at all. So how important was this collection to the Historical Society and perhaps to the town? Orland Campbell in the center here, a resident since boyhood, said after viewing a few digitized reels on my laptop computer, there was a whole African-American community that I was not aware of. The Manchester Historical Society has supported the search for Harris. The Historical Society already documented two male black residents. One, the town's tailor, Fred Nickelwhite, who lived to 104, and the other, Clyde Blackwell, who worked as doorman for 50 years at the Grand Seasonal Equinox Hotel. Blackwell was an African-American employee for the big hotel that accepted only white guests. Here, he's listed in the Negro, Negro Traveler's Green Book from 1956 with his own Manchester establishment for people of color, Clyde Blackwell's Hotel. You can see on the left, we have the entries for the Texas hotels. Anybody here work with the Green Book? It's online from the Schomburg Center. I highly recommend it for local history and for insights into mid-century. Members of the Blackwell family may appear in Harris's film. That's Anna. This is Dr. Campbell Day, 1949. By sharing her films identified by the film box inscriptions, like Dr. Campbell Day, 
we retrospectively recognize Anna Harris's contribution to film culture, helping shift the sense of who has standing in amateur film history, film history in general, and in cultural history. Harris, with many relationships among several generations in Manchester, was forgotten until her reels prompted new conversations. The high school alumni office did not know that Elsie and Helen Blackwell, we think that is their mom, went to Manchester's Burr and Burton Academy in the 1930s until we came to them with Anna Harris's film. North American social class, race, gender, and civic life are richly represented in amateur moving images. Showing small gauge personal films can help institutions reach back into records to provide important additional context, such as photos of the Blackwell sisters at then otherwise white Burr and Burton Academy. By using moving images, we can locate and interrogate constructs including classed society with domestic service, 20th century tourism and leisure, and elements of black and working class experience. Sean Harrington, here on the right, curator of the Manchester Historical Society, has proven a persistent ally. He confirmed Harris's identity through her obituary, named locations, contacted elders, posted to the Society's Facebook page, enlisted a genealogist, and spread enthusiasm for Anna B. Harris's work. When Martha McNamara and I wrote the introduction to amateur movie making aesthetics of the everyday, I landed on the phrase, the archival sand pile, while trying to express the contingencies of regional moving image preservation. Northeast Historic Film had accessioned the Anna B. Harris collection, but when the anthology was written, had not yet identified her or her relationships to filmmaking or Vermont. The films existed and this was a victory, but the reels were on the sand pile's thin edges. We wrote, although Northeast Historic Film has been lauded for its commitment to home movies and amateur film, the organization's collecting aspirations and the scope of its holdings are not always perfectly aligned. Film collecting and preservation can take place day to day only within the parameters of cultural expectations and the resources available to hold the archival sand pile together. For example, the predominant film creators by number in this volume are white, male, and extravagantly privileged. It would be a mistake to conclude that the smaller number of filmmakers who are women, or people of color, or working class indicates that Northeast Historic Film, or the essay authors in this volume, prefer or seek out films only from an elite white male demographic. We dug into Manchester and connected with Nate and Harriet Boone. Nathaniel Boone is black and Harriet Howell Boone is white. They are 1952 graduates of Bates College in Maine, the college Nate attended on the GI Bill after serving in the racially segregated Marine Corps. The couple was not welcome in Vermont hotels in the 1950s. They found Anna Harris's apartment through Fred Nicolwhite, the Manchester tailor. The Boones report that they knew Anna Harris very well, spent their 1957 honeymoon week in her apartment in Manchester, and continued to see her until the end of her life. This is Harriet, who spoke at the screening in August, and her husband, Nate, in the center. The archival sand pile implies the impossibility of managing and getting to know the mass of our audiovisual heritage. The opportunity is in committing to the edges where items disperse and disappear. 
Let us support the visibility of 8mm works while acknowledging the decisions and the labor required to find, to save, and collectively to value them. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work. And um, if you didn't get a little card, I have the book and flyers there. And uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Sneak preview. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm Justin Kovar from the Briscoe Center for American History. I'm the audiovisual moving image archivist there. And uh, this first part of the presentation is going to go pretty fast, a little faster than I like, because it's the stuff I really like talking about, which is formats and stuff. It's going to be disconcerting because I'm from the Midwest trying to talk fast. Be weird. But. <laughs> Um, so I'm focusing on the Alternative News, uh, uh, Alternative Views News Magazine, which was Austin's longest-running public access show. Uh, went for 20 years, from 1978 to 1998. Um, and I wanted to kind of get into what made this possible. And first was the invention of video in 1956. Um, and this is pretty accurate for what video looked like in its early days. Those are two inch thick tapes, probably about 15 inches across. So you're looking at a mainframe type of size to play these back. And this didn't go away. This, this two inch format was used through the 90s in professional broadcast stations. Um, and you still need the same equipment to play them back. Super preservation emergency. Um, but for public access, in 1969, uh, portable video came around. And uh, the, the first one was the Sony Portapax, and it's these EIAJ half-inch open reel tapes. Um, it was just black and white footage, and uh, you can see the naked fellow on the right um, is holding one of those Portapacks, and it's only 21 pounds and made kind of citizen journalism possible. Um, and video in general, as opposed to the film, um, that, that has been on display uh, for most of the panel is it's way uglier than film. It's, uh, it's much harder, well no, it's not much harder to preserve, but it's got a little bit more of a preservation mandate about it, and it's also just a different form. Um, that, that last part, especially that, it, that it's kind of ordinary or casual, uh, leads to kind of what you find on video. It's just a long form format. Um, with, with film cameras at the time, they were much better and much more portable than this 21-pound portapack. <laughs> but they had a, you know, you'd usually have a winder on them or batteries, and you're just, you know, there's a, kind of an incentive to just record just a little bit at a time and do kind of a very focused thing. With early videotape, you would lose sync if you started and stopped each time, so you'd have static and a bunch of weirdness. So there's actually an incentive to do long recording. 
Um, this also leads to terrible things like uh, Afshin from uh, Techstar Archive Moving Image Tammy has talked about getting tapes where it's six hours recorded on that EP speed of a camera pointed at a Christmas tree and it's just that. <laughs> Uh, 1970, the the kind of uh, idea of alternate television came around and decentralized media. Um, Radical Software was published, which was a big part of that. The alternate the alternate media center came around in 1971, and then also 1971, uh, public access cable mandate. Um, and this is where uh, the FCC wanted to require cable companies who had a certain amount of subscribers to provide public access equipment. Um, of course. Public ex or cable companies fought back against that, so there was lots of legal battles back and forth, but it did kind of set that precedent for uh, public access starting and stations kind of started as a result of that. And then you also had a 1971 uh, portable color video and also in a cartridge. Um, this, this looks a little bit like a VHS tape, but it's uh, much larger. It's kind of a little sandwich like this. Like this. And uh, it's a three quarter inch tape instead of half inch and way better quality. Um, and this wasn't actually affordable at this time yet, but it would play a big part in public access history. 1973, you have Austin Community Television formed, and this you know, kind of came about because there was a thought that there's going to be uh, funding by the cable co companies eventually, but there was, this was actually started by just some people who pooled their money for equipment and began this cooperative. Um, and then it went through various, lots of different ownership things. It was owned by the city at some point, and then now it's managed by the Austin uh, Film Society. There was also like before the Austin Film Society, like uh, not CEOs, but whoever was the president of it, like resigning in disgrace because they had embezzled tens of thousands of dollars, lots of weird stuff. <laughs> and, and public access history also is really weird um, because you know I have some ACTV collections at the Briscoe Center, uh, Austin History Center has some ACTV collections, and then it's, but the bulk of it is owned by Austin Film Society and there's probably duplication between what's at each of those places because it's decentralized media. So the creators own their show, the ACTV had their show, super weird stuff. Um, but then that brings us to 1978 when Alternative View started. Um, and this was by two guys. It started actually as kind of a media watchdog group where at the University of Texas where Doug Kellner was kind of monitoring what was suppressed in the media, um, what actually you know, came out and all that stuff. Um, and then Frank Morrow was the host. And uh, it's kind of exactly like what you would expect to see with something like that. Were there conspiracy theories? Yes, very much so. Uh, there's so much JFK, so much CIA. And I think actually the opening kind of shows this better than I can tell with like so much innuendo and uh, pans across photos that would make, uh, what's his face, uh, Ken Burns just, just scream. It's a good time. And also this, this was used for the entire 20 years.
really makes you think. <laughs> um, but beyond this, beyond the kind of wacky stuff, there's also really great representation of people who weren't normally on TV. Um, and they kind of had an open door policy and a lot of their shows were actually initiated by uh, community members. Um, so on this one, uh, let me see, I think I'll start with Why Aren't We Smiling? This was a show that was kind of dedicated to like women's uh, working issues and uh, had uh, this, this, this uh, slideshow was actually made by uh, attempted secretary's union and kind of tells some of the stories of their average every day. A student would come in and I'd be in the office and the student would look around and would say right in my face, oh, isn't anybody here? <laughs> and I'd think, well, sure I am or professors who would uh, walk through the hall and I'd have thousands of papers all spread out and ask me how come I wasn't smiling. Luckily, as a result of this video, uh, men learn not to ever ask women to smile again. <laughs> um, and this is another one from uh, covering uh, uh, protest in Dallas against uh, the KKK uh, demonstration that was happening. When we would pass the police during the, the um, march, where they were ready, they were all in their riot gear and their riot sticks, nightsticks all ready. To me, it looked like they were ready to attack us, and we were just, you know, doing a peaceful march. And uh, they weren't there to protect us. I didn't feel protected by them. As a matter of fact, I felt threatened by their presence. We always do. And then you also have on a Leonard Peltier episode. You uh, have the his Bureau cousin of Indian here. Affairs is just a branch of the United States government that is funded through every other kind of little project on how they want to keep the assimilation and genocide going to destroy our language and our land. And that's what it's really all about. And they did a very good job of it. Because right now, living on the reservation, people think that we have it made. We're getting land lease agreements and money's coming all the time. And the Indians can just kick back and take it easy. But this isn't so mm -hmm. because you go onto the reservation and you got the highest poverty in the country going on besides the ghettos and the communities. And then Deborah Hill, a uh, gay activist. No. A lot of people, all kinds of colors. Do you think that perhaps the uh, KKK challenge will bring about a coalition of, of people who are of various, of various colors? It's who will finally colors, unite, you think? Minorities, minorities. All minorities. Yeah, right. Because it's also lesbians and homosexuals, mm -hmm. as well as blacks, um, Chicanos, and women. Anyone yeah. who is not of a white male supremacist caste is their enemy. And then also, uh, just a, a, a jewel of the collection is that there's a lot of documentation, and it's, it's not the normal kind of documentation where it hap happens from like an exterior shot um, or you know somebody on the outside kind of looking for the freaks in a protest. It's made by people in the protest. Um, I'm a little behind on time, so I'm gonna skip to the next one, but. This one kind of envelopes that. That's not Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in the background. That's not Three Mile Island. That's the South Texas Nuclear Project in Matagorda County. Alternative Views brings its camera to Matagorda to cover the anti-nuclear demonstration here. And we're standing here in the mud, along with a lot of other people, and we're going to be wading through the crowd trying to get some interviews. 
So it's interesting because you get really intelligent conversations happening with that crowd. Um, you also notice too, all this video is black and white. Um, that's because this is the portable camera that they were using for on-site footage. It's the IAJ. Um, and then this one, this is kind of a rough clip. This is pr police brutality. Um, video, because of its kind of long form nature, does tend to be the thing that documents things like this. You wouldn't have the Rodney King case without videotape, for sure. Oh, that's an uniformed officer information that the public gets, they get the feeling that no wonder that with the police, some of them maybe had overreacted because after all they were probably very excited after one of their fellow members had been hit with a baseball bat. And uh, this actually, there's an extended uh, documentary on this that Tim Hamblin from the Austin History Center just posted to YouTube a couple months ago. And it's really worth watching. It, it was uh, started as a protest by a group called the Brown Berets in Austin who were protesting these uh, drag boat races that happened on the east side, just right outside of their window. And for some reason, they didn't want these crazy 90 seconds of boats going as fast as they could right next to their house. Um, and it ended poorly. Um, another great thing in the collection is uh, famous guests are actually more like archives famous guests. <laughs> um, this is Dick, the author Dick Rivas. You can uh, check into his collection at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University. Um, we have uh, Delia Gamez, uh, and she's at the Benson Latin American Center with the Texas Farm Workers Union. This just got way smaller for some reason. Um, and then uh, Ralph Yarbrough, who's at the Briscoe Center with just tons of stuff, and I could listen to him talk all day. He's amazing. Um, and then also people who aren't actually in collections, like Velma Roberts, who was talking earlier, but she's memorialized in a 17-foot monument that's over in the Rosewood area of Austin, uh, along with three other uh, uh, civil rights workers in Austin. Um, and she started the Austin Black Citizens Task Force. Um, there's also infamous guests, um, like Betty Ann Duke, who was a really regular contributor at the beginning of the, uh, of the show. Um, and then in about 1985, she was kind of on the lam for being in a weatherman type of group called the May 19th group. Um, and kind of interesting, and from what I can see, was never found. Um, Alternative Views is also interesting. They did a self-syndication, so they, would, they printed a program catalog and would send that to people in other public access areas to air the shows that they had. Um, I, I kind of hate that because it goes against the local idea of public access, but it's a really interesting thing that they did. Um, and then something that I think might be kind of like the, the best thing the collection does is it, it, it would show complete documentaries, and because of the nature of decentralized media, these aren't always anywhere else. Like, it, we've, we've definitely had uh, requests for duplication where it was people who could not find this documentary anywhere else and found it here. Um, and this one is Agent Orange and Exposure, and it's a soldier who had Agent Orange uh, problems and his kids had problems, and kind of details a day in his life in about 15 minutes. This isn't in WorldCat, this is, there's no institution I can find with this. I hope that there, somewhere there is you know, somebody with this in their closet, but with decentralized media, there is no main vault for that stuff. Um, we uh, were getting calls from men 29, 30 years old with four or five different kinds of cancer all through their body. And after years of frustration and, and having doors shut in our face everywhere we turned, we decided to uh, set up a nonprofit organization 
and we called it the Brotherhood of Vietnam Veterans in that that basically was what we wanted it to be, a true brotherhood where veterans, no matter how bad off they were, could somehow find it within themselves to help other veterans. I love these shots of just them getting together. It's cool stuff. Um, so that's 1978 to 1998, Alternative Views, and I just wanted to leave with the last clip um, just to kind of bring home the point of, like, one, the fun, really grassy roots activism that happened, um, but also seeing kind of that video degradation. Um, if you're not an AV archivist, you might not know that there's kind of a 15-year clock we have left for preserving magnetic media at, at uh, an affordable cost. So if you have collections that you think are interesting, now is the time to start kind of digging into those. If you're a researcher and you have collections that you think you might be interested, you really want to start pushing for those to get digitized. Um, so yeah. Now who's building apartments along Barton Springs Eternal? Who sits on the planning commission singing Barton Springs Eternal? I get the funny feeling that once it's gone, it won't come back. Conflicting interest of making tracks down Barton Springs Eternal. A hundred acre shopping mall on Barton Springs Eternal. Might be the worst offender of all Barton Springs Eternal. Every time there come a rain, that hundred acres is gonna drain. I don't believe video that it skip won't change. Barton Springs Eternal. The city voted in '75 about Barton Springs Eternal. Greenbelt acres it would buy on Barton Springs Eternal. More than a million was set aside. It sits there still while prices rise. We don't want no consolation prize. We want Barton Springs Eternal. Spirit. Barton Springs Eternal. Barton Springs Eternal. Barton Springs Eternal. That's what we need. Barton Springs Eternal. Simply Barton Springs Eternal. One more time. Barton Springs Eternal. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, if you have any AV questions ever, feel free to contact me. And uh, I will try to go through this rather quickly because I'd rather you see some of the media than hear me talk. Um, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm Laura Treat. I'm from the University of North Texas Libraries, and I'm going to talk about use, which is important for all of us. So, as we have seen from all of our panelists, the non-theatrical moving image collections offer many opportunities to enrich public programming, scholarship, and are just generally entertaining. They allow us to explore complex social issues within our institutions and communities, like local and regional reactions to national events, pedagogy and educational technologies, community activism and politics, news and media production, 
They also bring new voices and new experiences to our programming and allow broader community representation. And so much more, right? So despite all of this, they still remain hidden and underused, right? And there are a lot of reasons, and we've talked about some of these. The lack of digital access, the cost to digitize and preserve, publications and educational programs that privilege print uh, primary sources over audiovisual. But there are also reasons that fall on my shoulders, things that I'm responsible for, and that is awareness and promotion. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really happy to be here today, and I'm happy that y'all stuck around. Because I want to share with you the opportunities our collections might offer you and your patrons to discuss ways cultural heritage institutions might endeavor to increase our film power through the impact and reach of their moving image collections, and emphasize that when it works correctly, the relationship between an archive and a library and our users is collaborative and mutually beneficial. So let's talk about use and supporting moving image preservation and some of the challenges and opportunities I've found at UNT. So I should tell you just a little bit about myself, which is as an archivist, my top priorities are understanding how our materials are used and taking that knowledge and harnessing it to better serve you. I think that resources we devote to preservation should not exceed those that we devote to advocacy and promotion. And the responsibility to locate and explore is not all of your responsibility, it's ours as well. So what does use have to do with it? Have to do with it? Um, <laughs> beyond fulfilling my own professional goals, there's always a bottom line and we report to stakeholders, right? So even though funding agencies are increasingly supporting moving image preservation and digitization, the criteria always emphasizes actual and potential use, right? Their calls for proposals emphasize potential scholarly value, the ability to support research, education, and public programming, and the value beyond our own immediate institutions and communities. So at UNT, we have really great collections ranging from industrial films and educational materials to home movies and a television news collection. Um, and even though it's one of my primary goals, again, to increase their use, it's really not been working. <laughs> In the past two years, the vast majority of requests for access to the media library film collection have come from a single collection of industrial films. Um, and even though those users have been fairly diverse, this is one collection of a multitude that we uh, have at the media library. We also have the television news collection, um, which is from the oldest television news station in Texas. Um, and when you look at all the requests for research to access, digitize, and license this content, it pretty much all comes from one group, the filmmaking community, and their requests have largely centered on topics of just terrorism, murder, and sports. <laughs> So with the exception of two history professors at UNT who incorporated some of this news footage into their coursework on desegregation in Texas schools, interest from our faculty and from our students and our general research community has been fairly scarce. So if I think use is important and an indicator of value, I am doing something wrong. We are all doing something wrong. <laughs> there is a problem. Our collections aren't reaching a wide enough audience. We aren't getting a message to you or your patrons. So I'm gonna talk really quickly about a couple of projects that I've worked on um, in an effort to increase awareness and then a little thing that I've worked on just for y'all today. 
So uh, last year, I worked with my colleague Courtney Jacobs to create a digital humanities exhibit that drew on uh, digitized primary sources, including our television news collection. I encourage you to go there. There's no time today. We've got go.com. It's not what it sounds like. <laughs> um, and this was really an effort to expose faculty to the opportunities of working with moving image collections, while it also allowed us to explore our own personal research interests with moving images and to highlight some of the challenges that go along with that type of research. Um, the centerpiece of our project was a video that drew from three different moving image sources that we thought would help contrast amateur and professional visual narratives in, in Texas from 1967 to 1968. Um, so We'll just take a really quick look at that. Hopefully it works. Um, yeah, so you can see on um, the far left side is Dynamic Denton, a Chamber of Commerce produced film. Very sunny, very happy. In the center, obviously, the anti-establishment. Bonnie and Clyde also filmed in North Texas during that same time period. And then unedited television news footage from the Vietnam era. So I've also worked um, trying to get community uh, awareness of our moving image collections and bringing new voices to the table. So I was awarded a Common Heritage Grant um, from NEH to preserve and provide access to the moving image histories of Denton County. Um, this was very heavily modeled after Tammy's uh, Film Roundup program, and Tammy was a key collaborator in the project. But in addition to providing access to the materials, and to we wanted to increase awareness of the value of our collections to tell, community we tell our communities that we actually have these collections um, and what kind of opportunities they offer for engagement. So one of the things we did was create a documentary about the project, um, and I'll save you the horrible images of me on that, um, but we'll listen to a brief clip. It's basically talking to people about the opportunities for engaging with home movies. Everyone loves a parade, and this is a frequently filmed event. Parades are great because they show us the different people and organizations that are active in a community, as well as the changing geography of our city's downtowns. Other community activities that are prominent in films collected from North Texas families were marching bands, drill teams, and of course football. You can watch the full film at the UNT Media Library's YouTube page if you want to see me on camera a little bit more. Um, but anyway, one of the exciting, again, the exciting part about that is telling people, you know, not only are your home movies valuable, like we've been talking about today, but these are the different opportunities for scholarship and engagement that you can um, draw from those materials. So I've also been working on some research projects at UNT that explore how different communities experience moving image archives and how we can improve our access policies um, to better accommodate a more diverse user population. And so in one of my recent projects, my colleague and I talked to filmmakers, because of course that's the, the group that we've been working with the most, and we said, you know, how can libraries and archives better promote our materials? And obviously, a big stumbling block for all these people was a lack of digital access. You know, they, did, they felt like they couldn't really explore the collections. They didn't know what we had and what it had to offer. Um, so one of their suggestions was that we make a highlight reel that would tell us more about it. So I uh, went ahead and made a highlight reel. I made two. <laughs> um, and I really made these um, 
to serve one as a literal example of the breadth of the collections and the possible topics and themes available, uh, topics that go beyond sports and murder. Um, as a source of inspiration, uh, hopefully these materials might inspire our own research and think about incorporating moving images into our own projects. And as an example of a promotional tool um, that I hope others might use. So I'm going to not show one of them because we just don't have time. Um, but this one is good if you go onto the portal to Texas History. We have promotional films uh, about the libraries. But we're going to watch this one because I spent too much time making it. Hold on. Uh, so this is really about um, the different opportunities that you have um, working with a television news collection. And um, I start with the evolution of the media circus because I think it's a really nice way of reframing all of those requests for murder. Neighbors are confused and stunned. Several told me they didn't see or hear anything unusual yesterday. Although the kids were outside playing, the doors and windows were open. The main street is quiet, and women are fearful. Wiley's a small town, and a lot of people know everybody around. They've lived around for years, and we're just scared that it might be somebody we know, you know, someone that we thought was, you know, sweet guy or sweet lady. And everyone has an opinion about how it will end. When the rain washes David clean, he'll know. With a gathering like this, it's only a matter of time before small businesses sprout up selling t-shirts and souvenirs. And we have um, Koresh burgers and Koresh dogs. This is the American way, right? This is what it's all about. All this coverage costs a bundle. Some news organizations are giving up the ghost, gathering miles of cable, taking their pens, pads, and satellite trucks out of town. More and more people are coming out, and, and as they know us, and they, they realize that we're really nice people after all, and, and our being gay has nothing to do with the kind of person that we are. Mr. Cephas, you've no doubt read about the controversy raging at the University of Alabama. Would you care to comment on that? Mr. Martin, I do think that the situation in the University of Alabama is most regrettable. I would like to say that I'm happy to be a student on the campus of Dill, North Texas that exemplifies the true Texas spirit. District-wise, Mexicanos make up about a sixth of the student population. The school district collects federal money for the bilingual education of Mexican-American students. But when it comes to school desegregation, the Mexicanos are considered white and are used as such for integration purposes, because integration for the last 20 years has remained a black and white issue. It's been a tough year for Iranian students in the United States. Many of them tell me they've encountered a great deal of hostility. They're hoping that will change once the hostages are freed. But as for our government, they still expect hostility there. Uh, as long as this government in the United States exists, there are problems between Iran and the United States. Well, we're here today rallying for the Equal Rights Amendment because we have less than one year under the present conditions in which to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, a vote for the extension is a vote for women, and a vote against the extension is a vote against women. This is an effort to get greater assistance to the poor in this city, and certainly 
I do know enough of Dallas to know there are great gaps between the very wealthy in Dallas and the very poor in Dallas to do more to see to it that the shame and the atrocity of Americans being without at a time of great and growing plenty. Okay. All right, thanks for that. Um, so I guess just to wrap this up, to wrap this up, whole panel up, is where do we go from here? And what I would like to encourage um, if people want to stick around and talk is to have an actual discussion about how we can make our materials more accessible to you, what we can do to encourage you to use them, um, and you know, just open that dialogue. Digitizing video, so uh, any, could you say more about that, how things might be getting better for funding? Sure, I mean, I don't think that the situation is vastly improved for so many people because there's a lot of competition for these grants, but there is an increased rec recognition among some major funding agencies that moving images are worthy of preservation and that digitization is part of that process. Um, you might remember, Karen, but there's two new programs. That's a Recordings at Risk program. I, it's, I don't know, is that NHPRC, maybe? Um, but anyway, there, yeah, there are two new major funding um, programs that are targeting uh, AV materials, um, whereas I think they weren't considered very much before. But yeah, we're still in, we're still in a dire situation, so race. Anyone else? The NEH Common Heritage Grant that you got, I believe, would support that kind of. That's true, and yeah. There's the Hidden collections. I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah. yeah, there we go. So the question of funding, I'm sure, is on everybody's mind. Um, have people here been successful in getting grants for digitization? Yes, a few. Um, I've been in this since before digitization was an issue. And the first thing to do is you need to take responsibility with for talking to any grantors you know, because it starts with advocacy, because they don't know that there's a need until you tell them there's a need. So we started with our State Humanities Council, and we exist as an institution because we convinced that people, we convinced the State Humanities Council that audiences would come out, and they needed dots on a map. So, you know, the Council on Library and Information Resources, which you mentioned, had no interest in AV in the first two rounds, and I called them up and I said, you know you're doing descriptive grants and they're big ones, like $100,000, and audiovisual is 20th century cultural heritage. Would you consider it? And they said, oh yes, nobody asked. So you really have to take responsibility for saying this is important and getting numbers in so you can show how it's important that people show up and then making sweet case studies. And you know, don't wait until the program exists. Find unlikely funders. And sometimes it's 
family foundations because family foundations can make grants. You have to know them, and there are back pocket grants also, major foundations like Kellogg. Um, the, uh, the program officers can make grants if you let them know. So start small, make people know, be an advocate for the things that you think are important, and you can grow the resource just by doing programs like these, like ones you're already doing, and deciding how much money will make a difference to you. Thank you for that question. Uh, not so much just a question, but uh, just a little plug real quickly. Um, my name is Jeff Salmon with the Frontier Texas Museum in Abilene. We um, started a uh, film festival a few years ago called the Tribute Film Festival, uh, dedicated to works of nonfiction, you know, documentary film festival. And um, our goal was to engage with filmmakers. And one of the goals was to first engage with them and see what they're interested in, but then to make a dialogue with them to say, have you considered these topics and these resources? And that's one of the things that we're doing. And, and, and just the, the thing that some of you might be interested in is um, there's cash prizes, there's not big, but there's a category, um, our, our highest cash category, which is a $250 prize for uh, documentary films made by or for museums. And so you can find that by Googling Tribute Film Festival. Um, it's real simple to submit that. But I'll say, um, we've done it, we're on our third year, and um, we get amazing films from filmmakers around the world. Um, very little from Texas as of yet. Um, and uh, I would love to, our judges would probably love to award that best uh, museum uh, film to a Texas museum. Thanks. Does anybody else have a question? Um, well, copyright and fair use is quite tricky, and I'm sure it would be different for every institution. What, of what materials specifically, like what do you, what do you have that you're curious about? I mean, I can speak to my institution specifically. We have a copy in the cloud. We have the, on a local server. We have it on the website. We put it in multiple places because lots of copies keep stuff safe. That's an archival principle. Um, so we have backups of our backups of our backups. Um, for copyright and fair use, um, we, ha we with at TAMI, we have a, per a license to use all of our materials from the Roundup, and the donors retain their copyright. So we have a license to use it on our website um, and in other educational materials. Um, but we don't own the copyright to most of our films. Occasionally, it's signed over to us. Um, did you have a, like... Right. That's always tricky with orphan films, yeah, where you don't know who owns it or, who, you know, things that are found on eBay, that kind of thing. Um, Again, I'm sure that every one here would have a different answer for their institution, and the people at uh, university-affiliated archives probably have a much more rigid process. Uh, I work at a very small nonprofit, so our philosophy is kind of put it up until someone asks us to take it down, and then we take it down. And we do. That's happened very few times, but 
almost all of the time, if someone finds their stuff on our website, they write us and they are pumped. <laughs> they are so excited. They're like, where did you find this? I forgot I ever made this. Um, I can't believe that I can see it again. Can I get a copy? And of course we send them a copy immediately. But um, we I once have had someone ask us to take something down. Uh, that depends on the specific donor agreement, whether or not we allow people, you know, to, I'm repeating the question for the recording, um, allow people to reuse the, the materials and remix them. Um, yeah, it just depends specifically on what kind of permission we have from the donor. Does anyone else have an interesting answer to that on the panel? I think it's, as you said, it's a it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis and working at an academic institution, we definitely do have more strict um, rules about uh, use and reuse, but we try to do our best to get it out there as much as possible. Yeah, we really just want people to access the materials and to watch them and to use them. So that's what we're trying to encourage. Yeah, and I definitely, at University of Texas, uh, we have no lawyer that we can call to ask about different things, even though it's a large institution. Um, more than anything, I use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, and we have a really rigorous takedown policy, and copyright also informs what we digitize in that if a collection is, a, uh, we don't know the owner, it's orphaned, but it seems like it could be a centralized owner, that's not a great candidate for digitization if we can't get clear, clear rights for that, because all of our work could be taken down in one fell swoop with one request. We don't transfer things that we know are copyrighted. We won't transfer your copy of Dirty Dancing or uh, you know, Disney, the little Disney eight millimeter films or the Castle films. We know that those are under copyright and that they're litigious, so we don't touch those. I'm going to say ish, yeah. kind of. <laughs> uh, the place that, that I'm always watching is a group called FADGI, F-A-D-G-I. Um, and I'm not going to try to break down the acronym because I can't remember parts. But it, it's, it's right now there's something like an emerging best practice for video. And, and film becomes video when it's digitized. Um, but it, that, that is really murky territory still. Um, where, where the opposite is true with audio, um, there are very clear standards that are really easy to follow. Um, but yeah, the film is still tricky because, because especially because film has uh, so much uh, potential resolution to it, especially as you get into 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, um, you're looking at really HD quality or better, like you know 4K or 8K scans for a 35 millimeter film. Um, yeah. Nice, that's a good follow-up. Yeah, definitely. Um, I personally, and people think I'm crazy for this, but I'm not, I'm exactly right. I do uncompressed, um, uncompressed video, and uh, I, I can't do uncompressed film because the, the sniper uh, machine that we use, the telesign, can't do completely uncompressed. Um, but for, I, I don't know of any format where once uh, hard drive space has come into parity that archives have moved out of uncompressed. Um, we don't. We haven't stopped using TIFF files or you know JPEG 2000s, um, uh, and we have. We're not planning on stopping to use WAV files. So especially because we have that magnetic media crisis looming, when I digitize a UMatic tape or a VHS tape, I'm doing uncompressed at this time. 
Um, and we happen to have the really great uh, storage deal with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. So we're in a really nice spot um, where we have a, a decent uh, uh, storage cost. But I'm just gonna repeat the question real quick. She had asked about um, standards for digitization. Um, and I'm gonna just answer briefly to that before we get to your question, which is a very good question actually, like super good question. Um, I think that yes, the highest standard is always the best, but I feel like we should always remember that we are again in this race against time and we are a small group of people working to care for and make these materials available and sometimes we have to do a lower standard because we have things like costs of digital storage is a very real thing and we and so I think doing your best is better than doing nothing um, and the, the other question was how do you keep the old equipment going Justin <laughs> Uh, lots of luck, <laughs> uh, making constant contacts, um, looking for people who used to service broadcast companies is, is one of the best sources I have, and really talking to local AV archivists and kind of building a consortium, uh, because the people who repair the, this equipment are just disappearing. Yeah, we, oh yeah, 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 nice. No, I'm a big fan of that. Like, uh, basically, like my rule of thumb is always, if I'm doing a project with a big project with the format, I, I need three pieces of the equipment that plays it back. Um, the Association of Moving Image Archivists is a really good resource for both of these questions if you follow their listserv. Um, the Association of Moving Image Archivists is housed at the Academy. It's emianet.org online. If you join their listserv, there's very generous conversation from people on both of these issues, the technology um, and the digitization. And the short answer is that there, it's never going to stop. And the intensity of the uh, resolution that we're going to be asked to provide to end users is without end. Um, people are talking about hyperscanning now, you know, through the physical film, you know, in three dimensions. So imagine how large those files are going to be. Um, so it's not going to get cheaper and it's not going to get easier. But the good news is it's a really wonderful and warm community of people who do AV archiving and being a part of it is a pleasure. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay, we're here. You want to talk to us? Yeah, thanks so much for coming out. <laughs>